0: Okay, um, um, welcome everybody. Uh, my name is Michael Mason from the uh, Middle East Centre, uh, London School of Economics and Political Science, and I am delighted to, to welcome you all to this online uh, webinar event, The Origins of the Syrian Conflict, Climate Change and Human Security. In a minute, I'll I'll give you a few details and bio on our, on our, on our speaker. Uh, in the meantime, I'll just give you a little bit of information about the format for the meeting today. Uh, the um, Many of you will be used to our online events, so um, you'll know the format. For those who are not, what we're going to do is uh, our, our speaker will present for about 20-25 minutes, and then we move to a question and answers session. The You can submit a question to the speaker by typing your question in the question and answers box, which is on the bottom right of the Zoom screen, okay? And what we will do is after the initial presentation I will um, feed the questions from the questions and answers box to our speaker. Um, We will try to answer as many questions as possible. We've got plenty of time hopefully to to address as many questions as possible. If we get lots and lots of questions, which will be a good thing, I will combine uh, and, and to try to make sure that we do that as efficiently as possible. So we very much welcome your participation to this event. This event is being recorded and also live streamed on Facebook. If you want to tweet about the event, the uh, hashtag is LSC Syria or LSC Middle East. Now to the to the most important part of of the event, let me introduce uh, our speaker. Our speaker is Professor Marwa Daoudi of Georgetown University in the U.S. Um, and what what we're here actually is to this is the uh, to launch her book. This is the official, I've been told by Marwa, the official UK-European launch of her new book uh, uh, being published by Cambridge University Press, The Origins of the Syrian Conflict, Climate Change and Human Security, which I'm really pleased to have read uh, and I'm very impressed by. And hopefully I'll, I'll be able to say some comments about this. It's a very, very timely book. I think the interest in this, this seminar is this testament both to the topic and the speaker. Um, Marwa is an Associate Professor and a Saif Gorbash Chair in Arab Studies and International Relations at Georgetown University. Sorry, Georgetown University. Uh, prior to this she was a lecturer at Oxford University in the Department of Politics and International Relations and a Fellow of um, uh, Oxford's Middle East Centre at St Anthony's College. Uh, her research program in the last decade has generally focused on the intersection of security, politics, law and economics examining questions of water and conflict with a focus on the Middle East. Her main scholarly contributions have focused on three specific research interests. These are first, the relationship between transboundary water resources, power, conflict and cooperation. And the second is a critical examination of the climate change conflict nexus that is applied to developing countries in in conflict and that's particularly relevant of course to today's uh, seminar or webinar. And the third of her research interests is the intersection of international relations theory and Middle East politics in explaining interstate dynamics in the region after the Arab Spring. Um, I should say the the book, uh, Cambridge University Press, uh, very, very good, very readable, uh, very comprehensive. I'll say a little bit more about it. Um, Let me just say, if any of my students are watching that the book is also available now in the LSE as an ebook you can consult the book and it will be on the reading list for some of my students, undergraduates next year. So you get a chance to look at it first in the LSE library. I should also say Mara is also the author of an excellent um, paper that came out a couple of months ago in the Journal of International International Affairs on uh, water weaponization in Syria, strategies of domination and cooperation which is well worth a look. So um, with that, with that introduction, may I warmly welcome uh, our speaker, uh, um, over to you, Professor Daoudi.
1: Well, thank you so much, uh, Michael, for, first for inviting me um, uh, to, to have this book launch at LSE, which as you said, is my first European book launch, and also uh, for your very generous introduction. And everyone knows you, I'm sure, but I just want to say it's, I'm delighted to be hosted by you our paths have crossed in the the past. Uh, You work on issues that I'm very thrilled to read about. I've been benefiting a lot from your scholarship in the past and I look forward to our discussion and I'm very pleased to be here uh, with your students as well. And also thank you for ordering the book as well for the library and it's always good to hear that people are reading and buying the book. Um, I just wanna say, I'm going to start sharing. I have a PowerPoint slide presentation and I will be. So, the book is The Origins of the Syrian Conflict, Climate Change, and Human Security. And uh, this is a picture of Damascus. The book is about Syria, it's about Damascus. And I want to start. Okay. uh, Okay, now the background to my research actually. Why did I come to write this book? What is the context and the background? And clearly, there is an academic and policy debate. And then I'll take, I'll present my take on, on that debate and what motivated me actually in terms of, of this research. So this climate conflict nexus um, is, has been predominant in the, in the debate. And in my view, it, it carries a bit of a deterministic Orientalist uh, component Uh, with the shaping of discursive processes around the issue of climate change and conflict, particularly in the global South. And um, so it's shaped around the idea of risks and threats from drought and famine in the most vulnerable areas of the world. How do we define vulnerability is another issue. Which are the threatening areas of the world? And it also, the problem for me, the underlying assumption that it also denies responsibility of local governments who fail to mitigate the impact of climate change, and sometimes it replicates a bit of neo-imperialist narratives about the global south being potentially a threat to the global north. And of course, the variable here is about migration, instability, and the risks posed for the global north. Um, That also justified repressive measures, and I I, I move on here to the securitization, the politics of fear, um, from semantics to policy, repressive measures to stop human mobility, and with this imminent threat and ongoing threat of climate change, the the conflation with migration has triggered a lot of discussion about how to limit uh, migration from the global south and how to repress actually the migrants. And this is an ongoing debate, as we all know, in Europe, as well in the European Union. So it's also uh, putting the responsibility on environmental migrants versus authoritarian regimes when it comes to conflicts like the Middle East, which has multiple layers uh, relating to political repression relating to the decades that preceded the conflict which i look into in my book my book is about the study of these decades and and why did we have that conflict because of also environmental issues but also many other political social economic factors Um, why syria syria has become the showcase in that debate because of the dramatic conflict which started in 2011 And it's because of the climate-induced displacement and unrest, it sparked a debate about uh, the fact that these migrants, there was agricultural failure, the fact that there were many migrants who moved away, creating instability and possibly conflict. So my focus is on agency here. And this is why I put the the issue of positionality, what is my position in that debate? Uh, I'm a Syrian scholar. Uh, I have, of course, um, emotional links to what is going on in Syria, but I'm also a scholar of environmental politics, international relations, and critical security studies, and it pained me somehow to see how much Syria was used in that debate, often by authors who had not done research on Syria uh, except you know writing these papers about climate change and the conflict and i felt i needed to bring my perspective uh, as a syrian scholar as also as a scholar of environmental politics on the issue now this is the book michael was very kind to show the cover Uh, in terms of methodology clearly i was able to access uh, domestic sources um, pre-conflict i've been working on water issues Uh, environmental politics in Syria since my first book, which was on the uh, water divide between Syria, Turkey, and Iraq, and I looked at domestic politics as well. But the new component with this approach is that I also bring in the domestic debates on the climate change issue, on the drought of 2006 and 2010, and also I've done a lot of field work and interviews pre-2011 in Syria, uh, in Lebanon and Turkey. And I will bring these voices to the discussion as well. So what's new here? Clearly the primary sources, the field work. I also decided to have a su- human security component to the discussion, which in fact, it's to put um, the, the individual level, the community level, the water, food, and the political levels at the heart of the discussion. And I will explain my framework uh, more in details in a little while. Uh, this is um, a study which is conceptual. I I try to conceptualize the variables to see how we can generalize this framework. It's also historical. It's about the history of Syria, the history of um, measures and policies implemented in terms of political economy, but also irrigation, agriculture. And it's also longitudinal analysis because um, to compare actually, to be able to generalize my findings, I look into different periods within the same single case study. be able to check in fact why did we have a conflict after this 2006-2010 drought and not in previous drastic droughts. Now we're talking about Syria clearly. Uh, Here is a map of Syria and mainly the region here, I guess with my, you can see my arrow, the north East and the East, which is at the heart of the discussion, and we will see why that is significant. This is considered as the breadbasket of Syria, and we will see that a lot of the irrigation and agricultural plans are happening in that region. It's called the Hassakeer or Jazeera, previously Jazeera Province. Now, those voices from Syria, just to start actually our discussion, I I've been interviewing different different personalities, different citizens. I wanted to bring all of the different voices which were missing from the ongoing debate about climate change and the Syrian conflict in my view. Uh, one aspect of that discussion is, for example, a long time dissident Yasin Haj whom I interviewed in 2016 in Turkey. And when I shared with him this ongoing debate as I was writing my book, he was appalled actually, as he's been a very vocal uh, dissident in the past decades. He'd been imprisoned for more than 10 years, about, I think, 15 years. And his comment was, I just discovered as we speak this thesis, and he fails to understand the purpose. And obviously, people who were voicing such explanations, according to him, were ignorant of serious situation in history. And I want to also compare that with a refugee. I was able to interview a refugee from the Hasaki region. When I told him, do you think it's because of climate change and the drought that you had to, um, you know, uh, be displaced and to become a refugee in Lebanon and the Bekaa Valley? And this was his comment actually saying, not only they lost everything, they're also seen as the instigator of the instability and the conflict when they're actually uh, the victims. I established a framework thinking we cannot look into climate change and instability and conflict if we don't contextualize, if we don't look at the structure, if we don't look at vulnerability and resilience at the core of these issues. And this is the overall framework that I will show how it applies to Syria and potentially I'm doing research on expanding the research actually to other countries as well in situations of conflict or not after climate change impacts, where actually we can test the different variables. And um, so clearly the human climate security approach brings in the series of threats and vulnerabilities posed by variation in climate conditions, but also elite decisions, clearly. So rather than viewing each circle as ordered separately, the HEX, what I call the HEX framework, illustrates the constitutive connections between each layer. So there is an issue of climate security, climate vulnerability, but it's also uh, linked to the political factors, the economic security, and at the core, my human security focus is on water and food insecurity. It is a method of process tracing, and I will show different graphs and how I've identified, in fact, the different impacts and how human insecurity actually. Uh, increased in the decades that pre- preceded the conflict and is a better explanation to me as an origin of the conflict to which climate change contributed, but it's also the political management, the economic management of the drought, of climate change impacts that triggered this and increased, decreased actually the security, the human security of the pop- population. So clearly my argument is one of cross, cross-pollination, but I decided to recenter the human subject while highlighting domestic and international systems of inequality. And this, this is why this approach also allows uh, for a critical and holistic appraisal of the mechanisms of the climate conflict nexus. Um, to weigh the drivers behind these results, we need to have a careful process tracing of how, for example, the government managed land, irrigation, agriculture, also to advance ideological goals And actually, if we don't do that, we're conflating the political with the environmental. This is also a critique of the human security framework, per se, which does not really provide a critical um, aspect to it, which does not question the the structures, uh, the political, uh, political economy of it, which does not question, actually, the inequitable structures behind it. So I put structure and vulnerability at the core foundation of how HEX considers all of these elements. So vulnerability is seen as the vulnerability to be able to identify the disruptions to the patterns of daily life from the perspective of the marginalized and the dispossessed. This includes chronic water insecurity, land degradation, arable land scarcity, food insecurity, and poverty. Working in connection, there's the concept of also the series of resilience factors. Are the populations able to adapt are they able to anticipate to cope and resist and also recover from the impact of climate change or climate variability. I also consider the role played by government structures, hence the word structure, and the policy choices made in this situation of climate uh, climate uncertainty. So what about hex in Syria? Now, again, the same factors, and clearly there's a drought which happened in 2006, 2010 I did a comparison between two situations of drought. 98, 2001 was also a very drastic drought. It was, for some, it's considered as more drastic than the one in 2006. And however, uh, it didn't lead to conflict. So was it managed differently? What happened there? Uh, clearly, ideology for me is a major factor. Uh, I looked into bathism, but also neoliberalism. Uh, and I will show, in fact, the evolution of that, water and agricultural policies, the intensive dam construction and irrigation plans and intensive irrigation. In terms of the other factors, economic and the, the uh, economic security and the political and social factors, clearly contribution of agriculture to GDP, unemployment, poverty, but also access to water, food, the impact of drought, and, um, and um, agricultural failure and collapse on migration, particularly in the rural areas and the urban and rural divide. Now, let me start with the first sen- you know, s- circle, um, climate vulnerability. And we could actually start from the heart of the issue or move on between the circles, but I decided to look into climate vulnerability first. And here are two, of course, um, measures of, of of climate impacts. It's the amount of rainfall and the temperature. And to look into this, we see clearly that there's been a drastic decrease during the 98, 2001, and I'm pointing here, of rainfall, and a drastic increase of temperatures over time. Now, if we we look into climate vulnerability, one could assume because of these climatic changes, um, one would assume that possibly, Uh, there would be a drastic impact, and the deterministic approach would would assume that actually 1998, with the drastic decrease in rainfall, uh, that would have created a lot of instability and unrest in Syria, and we know that the conflict happened much later. This is one aspect of it. Um, Just to give you an idea, during drought one, which I call drought one, the temperatures increased by a yearly average of 5.7%. Drought two only averaged a 3.93 increase from pre drought years. It's a similar discrepancy is reflected when comparing precipitation levels. The second drought's larger impact on food and water insecurity must also in that case therefore be traced as a function of political and economic factors, which I will look into now. So political vulnerability, which I link to resilience as well. And here the the variable, the concept of ideology is crucial in my view, because it determined a lot of the policies which have been adopted by the Syrian government since the 1950s, pre-Baathist times, but also later on in the sixties, up until the middle of the 2000s. So, Clearly, climate impacts are filtered through political structure, which is composed of, in my view, ideology, state institutions, and policy, which also shape how individuals and communities experience water and food insecurity. So by ideology, I refer to the Gramscian conception of the term encompassing the institutional practices, the principles, and the dogmas. And that allows us to better understand the vulnerabilities, the political vulnerabilities, of the northeastern parts of Syria Uh, into looking into how this ideology has impacted, how the two ideologies actually have impacted uh, the vulnerability of the populations and their resilience. So Baathism, I will not go into details, and I'm happy to answer questions here. It's really a a pan-Arab ideology, um, also uh, um, inspired by socialism and nationalism. It evolved from a radical socialist form in the 1950s to a symbolic discourse under Hafez al-Assad that incorporated as well Sunni bourgeois constituency while maintaining the loyalty of the peasant bases. Here the historical analysis about these ideological shifts and also how they impacted the choice of policies. For example, food security was a major focus uh, of the Baathist regime since 1960, the expansion of the irrigated land, the fact of feeding the rural populations and providing employment to these populations, having a social contract. Uh, the discourse surrounding these projects conflated water security with political power and legitimacy, and was later amplified by propaganda under of al Assad that highlighted the leaders' peasant origins as well as the, the uh, sort of like the the symbol the emblem of of the new regime we shifted there's been debaathification and i show that the agrarian revolution was very crucial uh, in developing, actually, uh, the well-being of the, the rural population. There were positive impacts. The negative and the downside was, of course, uh, the depletion of the water resources, making the populations dependent on fixed prices, on subsidies. And then there's been gradually um, a decollectivization, um, uh, which started people with think the social market economy of the mid-2000s. And if you look back into the historical uh, facts actually starting in the 1970s, 1980s, there was a start of debathification and decollectivization uh, with the multiple, what I call in my book, the multiple ifitahat, uh, openings, which started officially in 1986 and um, instrumentalizing environmental and economic threats actually to mitigate social instability co-opting various social classes, but opening up also to other social classes. The cornerstone was clearly the construction of the Topka Dam and this idea of providing irrigation, irrigated land to the population, the rural population, mainly of the Northeast. So food security was a major focus. Now, 2005, and I will not go through all of the details, but clearly this idea of a strategic crop was very important and wheat being one of them. And if we look into, I will come to the definition of these different crops and how they impacted actually the unsustainable practices around food security. Actually, Syrian economists, I will define it here because I have it on my slide, the Syrian economists and agricultural policymakers have defined these crops as those that are the main source for the civilian food supply that are usually grown in the grain-producing eastern region, and they tend to be dependent on rainfall. Uh, they clearly, according to other sources, they are the crop for which the government sets producer prices wheat, barley, lentils, chickpeas, cotton. and I 'll come back to the issue of having cotton and wheat as a major strategic crop and how it has decreased in the past few years. Now if I move on to the voices from Syria, I want to highlight that all of these issues, the management of the agriculture, irrigation, uh, the focus on food security, all of this has been debated. Within Syria, um, through papers, oral debates, writings, exchanges uh, within the Syrian Association of Economic Sciences. And I've been able to read all of the papers presented by economists, agricultural specialists, uh, irrigation engineers, etc., who were commenting the drought, its impact, the choice of policies, etc. So it was a very informative uh, source on everything that was happening in terms also of the drought, the unemployment the state mismanagement which was clearly uh, referred to in these papers the issue of the nazihin the internally displaced the rural urban divide the poverty and the warnings made by many of these domestic sources highly qualified specialists to the government saying you are ignoring the populations of the northeast there's a major drought and then in 2005 the shift to the social market economy if I go back to that slide, which in fact was inspired by uh, the choices made by Germany after the Second World War about liberalizing the economy at the same time and mainly um, canceling the subsidies on on the, the agricultural products in terms of fuel, but also pesticides at a time when the population was hardly hit by the drought. I'm putting a few names here, many informative papers uh, many of these uh, have later continued to write about the conflict, Saifan, for example, uh, being more in the opposition, and others have stayed on in Syria, and they've all brought their perspective, and they've often been, often been ignored by the international debates, unfortunately. They also uh, refer to the unsustainable practices, and they provided advice about how to best deal with this drought. I wanna move on now to the other circle, economic and social vulnerability. Clearly, poverty is a major issue here. And um, it's concentrated in the northeastern regions of Idlib, Aleppo, Raqqa, Deir ez zor and Hasake with the highest rates of poverty seen in those areas. Uh, 17.9%, followed by the northeastern urban areas where they remain significant at 11.2% in 2013. So clearly there's an urban-rural divide here between the two, and the employment in agriculture is a very important indicator in my view. Uh, agriculture used to represent 30% of GDP and also a percentage of total employment, and we see the major uh, decrease in 2007, which means a lot of these populations, because regional agricultural employment Uh, is important here. A lot of the populations in these rural areas were employed in agriculture and the decrease, you see the blue is Hasake, Derizou, Raqqa, and the major decrease coming in 2008 and coming down here after the end of the subsidies when the farmers were unable uh, to get subsidies on their agricultural products and also on fuel. on the basis of uh, preventing corruption. And all of these debates at the Syrian Association were also talking about potentially the benefits of lifting subsidies, but not doing it so drastically and so abruptly at the time of a drought. So clearly here, these indicators of human insecurity, uh, very relevant for uh, the deterioration of uh, human conditions. Now, food security, I mentioned before that wheat is one Is the main strategic crop, with cotton as well, and a lot of the economists and I had an interview with the Syrian engineer who, as part of the mismanagement and the mistakes made by the government, said cotton, which is highly water consumptive, should not have been coined as a strategic crop, should have been dropped a long time ago. We see here the the very drastic decrease in total wheat production. Um, I'm going to yeah in 2008. Wheat being a very major source. Uh, for food security for the populations. So drought two clearly destroyed the livelihood of over 50% of the farmers nationwide, of whom a majority lived in Hasake, Raqqa, and Deir ez-Zor. We know that in 2008, the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs launched an appeal to raise 20 million USD in support of over 1 million Syrians affected by the drought. And actually, this is where there was a conflation between the number of migrants and the vulnerable population in the Northeast. We know that 1 million were affected. And actually, in the numbers that I've seen, there was a lot of migration happening from these areas. And we go back to the previous slide. Because of unemployment, regional agricultural unemployment, uh, looking at the numbers and a lot of these experts, Uh, the the measures put in place by the government were insufficient. And they talk about about 40,000 to 60,000 families migrating from the Northeast to other places in Syria, mainly urban centers, being parked in slums, not being taken care of. And that the number actually of these families Uh, would be about 300 to 400,000 individuals. This is the first time in the history of Syria that you have whole communities being uprooted. We've always had migration, migration of young people in the rural areas going to the Gulf, going to the urban centers, but they always came back. Uh, and there was reverse migration happening historically, in that case, it's the first time that these villages were completely uprooted of their livelihood and their populations. And there was a lot of warning by the economists and the specialists domestically in 2007 and eight, warning the government about uh, ignoring and abandoning these populations. When the government decided to reinstall the subsidies 2009, it was way too late uh, because of the situation and the deterioration. Water security also, I'm just giving these graphs to give an idea of, for example, the number of illegal wells. And we see here the total non-licensed wells, how much they have increased over time because it costs a lot. I have an interview with another refugee who said he needed $500 to be able to have a license for a well, nobody could afford it. So that increased the number of uh, non-licensed wells and of course the depletion and the pollution of groundwater. Uh, which is part of the unsustainable practices. My final graph about food prices, this is a very important aspect showing the variability. Um, the, the variability, actually, the per capita food price variability um, allowing food prices to be compared across time. And we see the difference between 2000, the drastic decrease in 2007, actually here, and again, up going up after the end of the of the the drought. Per capita food price variability corresponds to the variability of the food net per capita production value in constant 2004-2006 international dollar. And this is a FAO stat uh, reference. It shows actually the variability from 2000 to 2014, which reached a peak of $32.6 per person in 2003 and a low of $14.7 per person in 2007. And I just want to say that since the conflict, we know that the agricultural sector has completely collapsed um, and that the food prices have tripled. Um, we have now almost half of the population in Syria, which is food insecure because of the conflict and below the poverty line. So this phenomenon has increased with the conflict. My conclusion here, and I hope I'm within the time frame, uh, the way forward. Clearly, we need to identify the causal processes that negotiate the link between environmental degradation and conflict, the link to structure, uh, the link to the policies, but also the economic, social, and, and ideological factors. And I also want to outline the perils of environmental determinism uh, with the discourses, the underlying neo-colonial discourses about threats coming from the global south when actually Uh, a lot of these uh, threats or the vulnerabilities are also impacted by international institutions. We know, for example, that the World Bank recommended that the Syrian government uh, lifts the the subsidies to fight corruption, to bring economic uh, efficiency. However, not as it shouldn't have been done in terms of for reform, it was done very drastically in the worst condition and circumstances. Uh, while emerging discussions within human security and critical security offer tools to address these shortcomings, I also bring um, a critical element to the human security framework, which is also to look into the international institutions and the risks posed also by, uh, the, with the feedback loops with the global capitalism and the liberalization of economies at times of great uncertainty for its rural populations without the proper care and concern uh, for their vulnerabilities and their resilience. And in that case, I believe HEX details a systemized method to apply them and hopefully to be able to generalise it to other cases than Syria. Thank you very much for your attention and I look forward to your questions. Thank
0: you very much, Mara. That was excellent. Um, if For those who have joined us uh, during the uh, presentation, uh, as I said at the start, you can put your questions into the question and answers box on the bottom right of your zoom screen. If I just say if I'm allowed as, as chair just to, just to make some um, um, comments first, um, I, I really think this is this is a landmark publication and there's been a lot of interest in, in not just in terms of Middle East studies and, and environmental climate change scholarship in the, in the so-called Syrian climate change uh, migration conflict thesis which as, as Mara says is in, in a book details, has both uh, uh, um, lots of uh, sort of a subscription to both in kind of popular uh, discourse, uh, but also some intellectual sort of uh, uh, research or academics um, claim that there is a, a significant link between climate change um, and the particular 2006 to 10 drought and the Sioux uprising in 2011. And I think that the book provides for me the, the, the most comprehensive uh investigation of this uh, uh, uh claim connection and the most comprehensive evidence-based investigation very objective uh, all the data is in the book or the one of the great things about the book is the is the amount of primary data which is unprecedented in terms of this particular uh, uh debate and topic and 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 particularly impressive in terms of the access to the syrian government data the, the fascinating papers and debates within the, the Syrian Association of Economic Sciences, yeah, and and this is this is bringing into the sort of anglophone scholarship a whole uh, a series of, of, of perspectives which were otherwise sort of uh, neglected and perhaps not even known about by much of the anglophone scholarship. So I think that's there's a very there's a very impressive empirical careful objective evidence-based investigation of this of the claim of the climate change uh, conflict thesis claim and the the second thing is as 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 ma has shown very very um clearly in her presentation it's this book is not just simply about the origins of the syrian conflict it's not simply about the the sort of the, the the connections between climate change and um Alleged connections between climate change and conflict—whether it's a it's a factor, it's significant, whether it's some kind of intensifier of conflict tendencies—I think the the theoretical framework that you provide in the book, this, the the hex, the human environmental climate security framework, is clearly something which has relevance uh, beyond this geographical context. But also, I think you know, in other other contexts where we need to investigate quite carefully the connections between. Human, environmental, uh, climate vulnerability, resilience, and the ways in which we can we can not just understand this academically, but also address this in terms of policy terms. And a book, I think, the book includes really important sort of insights into how we address uh, some of these challenges in terms of policy, ter- in, in policy terms. One of the the lessons here, which may not be welcomed by policymakers. And those who rush into the blogosphere very quickly to pronounce about these sorts of things is it requires very careful, historically sensitive and detailed understanding of the context of these issues. It's very easy to, 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 to make quite sort of immediate, uh, uh, sometimes often superficial sort of uh, uh, claims about some of these phenomena. And I think if you want a, a, a perfect example of the way to go about doing this in, in, a, in an academic, objective, comprehensive manner, then, then please read this book. Um, and I think anybody from this point on that has to wants to make a contribution to this debate, whether in the policy sphere or the academic sphere, cannot do so now without referring to this book. They will have to engage with this book. And any uh, uh, commentary or particularly academic work that doesn't do that will not be taken seriously because the book really advances the debate in, in, a, in, in a really significant way. So I'm really, really happy to read it. I've learned a lot from, from reading it, I have to say. Um, and questions are coming in. If I can be allowed to um, maybe start myself, you have a couple of questions in, is I'm... I'm really interested in. Um, I've got, I'll just start with one question, and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll ask one or two later. We'll see how the how the questions come in from the audience. Um, I'm really interested, Marwan, in, in in how you use the notion of human security, and in in the in the theoretical part of the book, um, where you talk about the sort of the movement from state security to human security is is a is a necessary movement in order to kind of uh, set up this more agency-based understanding of security in terms of individual and group vulnerability. And the, there is a policy kind of discourse out there which you talk about, which is the UNDP uh, notion of human security, which you draw upon in, in your book in terms of understanding issues around uh, sensitivity, exposure, resilience as these components of, 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 of human security and looking at in terms of food and water as security. The thing I was interested in is, is extend that you do more than that. You take this notion, which is out there in the policy sphere, but you give it a kind of critical turn, meaning you, you are using human security, but in a way in which you enables the the, the person using this to understand some structural features, which, which influence uh, security. And that's really significant because some of the academic critics of the human security notion, actually one of them from this institution, uh, one of the grand, the grand, the grand um, uh, architects of, of securitization theory, Barry Buzan, was quite famously, quite very critical of the notion of human security, is um, that you, you uh, 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 with your uh, framework, um, are able to, to say that we can take these structural features into account and still use this notion of human security. So I guess my question is around the, the extent to which um, for those academics who in the past have been quite sceptical about the notion of human security not being adequate to take into account some of these structural features around politics of economics and ideology, what would you say to them in terms of what you've done with your framework which enables you, you to use human security in this critical fashion?
1: So thank you. That's a great question, Michael. And thank you so much for your comments about the book. Um, I think this is this is how I was struggling with that concept and um, I felt that you know human security is seen as a policy tool right mainly by for example I mean we know that Amartya Sen and Habibul Haq are the ones who coined the concept in the early 2000s even earlier in the 1990s uh, their concern was to move away from state centric uh, security to the communities to the individuals their impact um, how they're impacted by the different threats that arise, and not only from a state-centric perspective. So the intention was very noble. And I, I, I like also, I, was, I used in my book the food security um, mm-hmm. concept by Sen, which is about entitlements. It's not about lack of food. It's not about lack of resources, but it's about the incapacity for some to access these because of economic and, and the political economy of food insecurity, which is very useful also here. Now, others would say it's mainly looking at the impact for populations, but not questioning what is causing these vulnerabilities, right? And this is what I tried in my book, as you rightly pointed out, is to say, what are the inequitable structures? What are the unsustainable practices? What are the ideological components which make these populations insecure economically, uh, socially, etc. So I think... All of the ones who criticize the, the, the concept were saying that it's weak normatively, that it's just a policy tool, it doesn't bring anything new to the discussion. I believe it does if we uh, contextualize it, if we bring the structural variables, and if we make it more holistic than it was initially. And, and there's been a debate going on since the early 2000s by academics, and you mentioned Buzan, there are others who have written about it, Newman and others uh, saying, How can we use it? And it's mainly a policy world, like discrediting the concept for academics. And when you say it's just a policy world tool, it doesn't have any conceptual strength to it. Whereas I think if you contextualize it, you look into the the causes, you look into the inequitable structures, you are able to use that as a very effective tool. And I think in terms of the climate change debate, having this human climate security aspect, which moves away from the deterministic orientalist approaches is a way in my view and in the book to strengthen the the narrative and also to to bring agency i think to the debate yes
0: good thank you very much let's let's turn to some questions um I think one of the questions is uh i'm not, not sure even uh is about a more the availability of the book is about supply chain digitalization which i'm i think I'm, i don't know what that um uh i think that's more to do, is that with the book being available? I don't know, is that somebody just pitching for some business? Anyway, we'll move on to Brian S. Uh, what exactly do you mean by departification, given that the political control of the state by the Bath regime has never been seriously modified in the recent past? And we'll take two questions at the same time. Uh, second one, um, Anna Chernova. excellent presentation, special thanks for the human security lens. This is about the UK government. Uh, the UK government is very focused on climate issues. Of course we've got the uh, the un uh, uh, climate change conference coming up uh, uh, um next year in glasgow uh, what would you like to see the government i guess the uk government do on issues of climate and conflict when it comes to the Syria crisis in the coming year um so there's particularly in terms of there's there's you may not know there's some current kind of debates about the in the uk uh, about the the the, the 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 move of the pushing the, the development sort of department into the into the uh, department of uh, uh, sort of the foreign affairs department in the uk and his issues about the strategic kind of role of uk development aid so i think this is kind of a question around in terms of c- could the uk government maybe in a post brexit world do anything meaningful anything different in in terms of the way it's approaching the the Syrian crisis so we'll go with those two questions for the moment. Thank you for the questions, please okay. get them coming in.
1: Okay, thank you very much. So um, I, I see where the question is coming from, Brian, I think the debatification, we're not in a situation like post 2003 Iraq, clearly, where clearly the, the party was dismantled, uh, was considered illegal. Uh, it was completely erased from uh, public, you know, life, political life. What I meant by debathification is the fact that we moved on. In, what is interesting is a lot of the analysts would say the social market economy implemented, like, you know, proclaimed in 2005 was the start of the major neoliberal shift in, in Syria's economy, ideologically, etc. When you look back at the history of Syria, you see that even back to the 1970s, 1986 and 1990, under Hafez al-Assad, you already had liberalization policies. We were moving away from the, you know, a very a radical um, a Baathist focus, which is collectivization only. Uh, we started having decollectivization. Um, we started having the, uh, for example, Law Number no. Ten in 1991, uh, which allowed for privatization, which in fact geared the regime towards more the Sunni. Um, merchants, which in fact brought about more private private interests business interest as well in the economy and opened up the economy to foreign investments as well. So that's what I meant by a gradual debathification and liberalization of the economy, which came very uh, discreetly over the years and was clearly uh, drastic and, and proclaimed much more openly in 2005 with the social market economy. And actually, if you want to use debathification, I'm, I'm not comparing with Iraq, but I'm showing more the shift away from the rather a socialist ideology and the move already under Hafez al-Assad. Now, the human security focus towards Syria, um, I think what I'm trying to bring from this critical perspective, it, it's to look at the causes of, of what makes people vulnerable and what prevents them from being resilient. And in that sense, I think The political aspect is important. Now, if human security is only providing food security, water security, and the basic needs, this in my view would not be sufficient. Um, So there's the freedom from fear aspect to it. And in the current circumstances, we still have half of the population in Syria, which is outside of the country, like displaced either internally or outside of the country. Uh, Under what conditions can they come back? So there's the political component of it. Um, will they be able to get back to their own possessions? Uh, will they be able to sustain themselves? Will there be political repression? The conflict is not finished. So I think if you have this critical perspective, and I don't know how much of the UK's involvement will be relevant here, that there's a need to consider all of the causes of this human insecurity, in my view, and hence the political, social, economic uh, there's also the war profiteers today who are benefiting from the, the spoils of war, whereas you have uh, half of the population, which is food insecure and which, who lives actually under the, the poverty line and, and the the prices of food, which have doubled, etc. So I think there's, need to be, there's a need for holistic approach. And that would be, I don't know much about the UK's uh, policy in that sense, but that would be my recommendation.
0: Okay, thank okay. you. Um, I'm going to combine two of the questions are about the lessons from your work on Syria to, to other Arab countries and the other question to neighbouring countries such as Turkey, where there's high vulnerability on these issues. So basically, what, what can the book tell us or, or, or how can the book help us understand and contextualise the impact of climate change elsewhere in the region? And I just had one other one, which is about... Um, It's all very complimentary, by the way, as you can see, if you look into the questions and answers box. Um, This is an interesting one about, you know, this, 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 the the book uh, helps us fight the disinformation war. Um, I was afraid from the book's title. It might conclude the opposite. The title is a bit misleading. (laughs) So maybe you can say something about that, but maybe that's deliberate. It gets you into reading the book. So I don't know. So if you've got any um, comments on that, thank you. So we'll go with those those two things.
1: I'll start with the title. Yeah, g- great question. I don't choose the title. I didn't choose the title. And I have to say first that I loved working with Cambridge University Press. And I recommend anyone to send your book proposals. It's been wonderful to work with the Middle East series editor, Maria Marsh, and all her, her team. And uh, so, so I, I suggested the conflict, the Syrian conflict and the, my title was more about assessing whether climate change was, was the answer. I had another title, I don't remember which one. And it came, you know, when you write a book, you don't choose the title. So it, it is misleading, but I hope people will understand that I'm saying the reverse and I'm testing actually the, the thesis. So the one about Turkey and human security, I'm not sure I understood the question, but I, I imagine it's about how can we understand um transboundary issues from a human security perspective between syria and turkey or maybe the person can clarify what what they meant by by the question because there has been an issue and there's still an issue between syria and turkey over the euphrates river which is the major lifeline in syria but all of this has been halted because of the overarching security issues the military invasion of turkey in the north of syria and turkey's main concern about the kurds so I don't know how much of the human security aspect of that you want me to, to expand on. So I would appreciate some maybe follow-up question on that.
0: Okay, thank you. So uh, next to, that uh, I can see um, a Mark here. The, the other regions in Syria, there was expo- expropriation of lands, obviously reorganization of confessional borders and identities. Of course, in, in your book, you talk about the Arabization of, of, of the northeast, with with the displacement of the Kurds uh, with the, I think it was called the Arab Belt policy, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the Arab policy in the 60s and 70s. This is still going on. Uh, can you explain about these aspects? Thank you for your work and presentation. And then um, there's a question, uh, uh, Lisa. Uh, thank you for your presentation. This is an outstanding analysis. How would you say, how far is it the Syrian government in becoming more open liberal economy, um, I think this is at uh, least uh, apologies if I not relaying this correctly. I think this is about basically choices for Syria going forward, if 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 in terms of uh, um, choices insofar as 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 those choices are are made by by those you know whoever. Uh, who you know? There's a whole different question about who has, who is making those choices, and on, on whose behalf and in whose interests. Let's just let's just uh, understand that in terms of, basically, the way forward is it is it isolationism? Is it internationalism? Is it a more open, liberal economy? So I'm guessing here the the, the question is alluding to the fact that it was a liberalisation of the economy, or at least the way it was liberalised, in your book, that intensified the vulnerability of the Syrian economy and the Syrian people to to, to these impacts, uh, these these physical climate change impacts. So what does that mean going into the future about, uh, you know, imagine we lived in a world where there was a sort of a, 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 a Syrian state representative of, accountable to its people, how would it go ahead? What's the way of, of going forward in terms of its choices? I hope that's something like what you meant Lisa, but we'll go with those two questions now. So the first one was about other regions in Syria.
1: So, so what happened is in, in the Northeast, the Arab Belt Plan, which I didn't have time to, to pre- present, is, is clearly about the Arabization. And what is interesting, the Arabization of, of the area, I go back to the history and the fact that you had uh, Kurds migrating from Turkey in the 30s, 40s, uh, later on not getting citizenship, they were considered as stateless. Um, and there was this plan through irrigation through the flooding of areas of Arabizing and, and putting more Arab villagers in the areas that were um, inhabited by the Kurds before. This is something which was um, sort of taboo in the history of Syria, but now what is interesting, you have books written in Arabic, and I, I refer to them, where a lot of Arab analysts, Syrians and others, are addressing this issue of the Arab Belt plant or the encirclement plant, plan, which, um, um, has an impact on what is happening today in the conflict as well with the fact that this region now uh, tried to go to be autonomous since t- 2013 with the Western Kurdistan area. Now, other regions now, what is happening since the conflict, I would say, um, it's part of the sectornization of the conflict and the fact that you had also, as you mentioned in your question, um, identity lines and identity uh, divides, which were done also on the basis, how can I say, the war was, was fragmenting the, 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 the territory, but the territory was also fragmented as a result of the war. And now this is the whole debate about, was it a sectarian war? I don't believe so, but it, it took on sectarian component to it. And I think the government's policy now in terms of expropriation of land, uh, the need for the refugees or the people who are not inside the country because they are refugees to prove um, uh, their title to the land or to their houses, etc., when they're actually absentees, is a way of expropriating these areas. And some would say with inhabiting the areas with, uh, you know, populations closer in terms of loyalty, etc. So there's a very dangerous trend happening now within Syria, which is adding to the human insecurity of the refugees. Uh, They have a double penalty, not only the refugees elsewhere. uh, They're not able to come back because they have no uh, guarantees about accessing their possessions because they're not able to prove. Often they don't have the titles and also because they're afraid of political repression. So I think this is ongoing now. Uh, after the war, and it's another element. It's not Arabization. Some would say it's possibly bringing more Sunni and Alawi populations who are seen as loyal in the areas where they, they, the government and the regime uh, elites uh, see potential sources of dissent and instability. So again, what is very interesting here, my conclusion also on that is how agricultural policies, um, developmental plans also come about with with the uh, ideational, ideological dimension. And in that case also about what is perceived from these elites as regime survival uh, clearly. Uh, The way forward about what type of economy, um, what we're seeing now, and I think this is extremely worrisome for the future of the country, is what I referred to before as the war profiteers. And these are domestic actors, but they also the external actors who were involved in the war and who are now you know, asking to benefit from their involvement. And so clearly uh, we see, I mean, a lot of the contracts over major resources such as oil, and this is worse, and I, I, I wrote a report recently, which will be published in a month, I believe, about the environmental consequences of the war. And I was appalled as I was doing my research um, to see that, not only the major resources such as oil and potentially phosphate and other major strategic resources will be allocated, will be awarded the exploitation to external actors. We know that Russia is very interested in exploiting these resources. We know that Iran is involved as well. Um, and also major businessmen who benefited from the war already are also gaining access to a lot of these profits potentially. So we're talking about major resources. There's also an impact of the war in terms of human insecurity, which is the rubbles, which are potentially toxic, which are not being clean. Or if they're allocated, the, again, there are gains in having the contracts for cleaning up the rubbles for major businessmen considered close to the regime. So my concern is it's not either liberalization or going back to social, et cetera. It's are we having an equitable economy? Are we having an economy which will repair and reconstruct? Or we will see like the war profiteers who already benefited from the conflict who will benefit from the post-conflict era, although we are not there yet, where we're already talking about reconstruction along economic lines, not really political fully now, but still already starting the debate about economic reconstruction for sheer profit at the moment. So I think this is where I think the discussion is at the moment in my view.
0: Yes, thank you. I think one of the challenges with a a war profiteering economy as in, uh, in, uh, in Yemen tragically, is it, it perpetuates itself and once you get a, a group of, of, of those that, who profit from that and have an interest in it, then, then sometimes there's actually a, a, a material incentive to perpetuate a conflict situation. Um, okay, next two uh, questions. Um, uh, uh, Christian Henderson, thank you Christian. The politics and environmental crisis creates losers but also winners. Who benefits from the environmental determinism that characterises some analysis of the Syrian conflict? That's a very interesting question. Who benefits from this narrative that you you, uh, um, uh, comment on, discuss in the book? And uh, uh, Lisa W, um, another another very good question, Um, thank you for your presentation. I think this is an outstanding analysis. How would you say, uh, how far is it that the Syrian, oh sorry, that was, (laughs) I'm... I'm reading one out I've already read, I'm sorry. (laughs) Let me go, I was looking at, yes, uh, Brian S. Uh, I wonder if you have any comments about the current debate over Western sanctions on Syria, given their disruptive role in the economy, but the fact that the the only instruments that currently have any hope of realizing human rights objectives in Syria. Did you get those two, uh, Mara? Yes,
1: I did, okay. Thank you. Thank you very much, always great questions. The benefits of environmental determinism, I I thought it was very interesting for me to look back to the 19th century deterministic discourses at the time Uh, Which determined the value of a country by its resources for colonial powers. So there was a 19th century uh, Darwinistic, neo Darwinistic approach to to, to to environmental management as well, which served the interests of the colonial powers, the European colonial powers. What I find interesting nowadays is uh, this idea of a climate conflict nexus um, and the fact of focusing on Syria um, was also done for. Valid reasons by scientists who are concerned about climate change and who want to draw attention create awareness internationally uh, possibly in the US because there are a lot of uh, de- de- There's a lot of denial in the US and so by having also this very dramatic Case which is always in the news and saying that this is a climate induced use conflict would be a way of creating this awareness so I think the intentions were not neo-colonial but they end up also reducing and being very reductive for i would say the syrian population or people who care about the history and development of syria because this is missing out on a lot of the political aspect of it another aspect also is this variable which plays a role in environmental determinism today uh, migration is also serving the interest of those who try to limit migration to europe i would say for example I, I was very struck by the fact when Aylan, the little boy who died on the shores of Turkey, there was a Canadian newspaper who wrote, this is what an environmental refugee looks like. And and it was very shocking to me to think that serving the, how can I say, it's of course environmental migration is an important aspect, but it's also um, using the loss of life of a little boy and forgetting about the whole context about the Syrian conflict and why this little boy's family had to be on the boat and leave political repression and possibly economic insecurity, etc. And so clearly migration is a taboo, is a red flag today in in European debates. And I believe the deterministic aspect of the debate could also serve the interest of those who put sovereignty uh, to the forefront of the debate. Um, The second question, So that's a very loaded debate, right? And I am personally against sanctions being put on any country around the world when these sanctions impact the population. And often we know that the population is the first to be impacted. However, I think this is a very um, hijacked discussion now when it comes to Syria. Those who are you know, proponents of not having sanctions and putting forth the human insecurity of the population, which is actually uh, happening. Of course, we know how much of the people are being poor and also um, not having access to resources and to food, and they're also displaced. Uh, They forget to say also that a lot of the war profiteers are part of the elites, um, that if the economy was equitable, if a lot of the resources were, we, we know in Damascus, for example, with all the poverty that we we have now, people queuing up to buy bread, to get subsidized bread. Uh, People, the the price of wheat has really uh, tripled, if not more. Uh, People need uh, at least 300,000 pounds a month to be able to survive as a normal family, when in fact the official salary is 50,000. So in that sense, how can they survive? At the same time, you have the recent iPhone, which was released in Damascus. Uh, the sons and daughters and the elites being able to afford that. So there's clearly an issue of corruption here in equitable access. And so if you're against the sanctions against the country, I think there should be sanctions against the elites who are profiting from the war, who are profiting from the reconstruction plans. And in that sense, the debate should be more holistic than just saying sanctions are bad or good. They're bad when the population is hit, but they should be an appraisal of what the economic situation is and where are the resources going versus how is the population being impoverished in the, in the current circumstances.
0: Thank you very much. Um, lots, of, lots of great questions coming in still. Um, Nora Al-Hassan, for those working in environmental security in other regions where conflict is not so apparent, but the vulnerability is relatively high, how can you apply the hex framework? Um, so does this is this framework also applicable to sort of non-conflict situations? First question. Second question, one of my um, centre colleagues, Max Skelton. Thank you for your fantastic presentation discussion. I'm wondering if the scientific community in Syria has engaged questions around how war generates change in the environment and potential health impacts, and what kind of discourse is on, the, is on that subject, which seems to me to relate to the report you just mentioned, Marwa, that you'd written on the environmental impacts of, of war in Syria. Thank you.
1: So the first question, yes, absolutely. This is uh, part of new research that I'm doing to look into the possibility of generalizing the HEX framework. And so I looked beyond Syria, Uh, into Sudan and Morocco. Sudan, where you had drought, very drastic drought. You had migration and you had conflict. And was it a climate-induced conflict or not? Or was it more about the policies implemented? And also looked into Morocco, for example, where you had also a very drastic drought happening, but you had very sustainable practices and policies implemented by the government to alleviate the vulnerabilities of the rural populations, which allowed for uh, the lack of conflict, actually, at the time when you had uprisings happening uh, in different regions where the drought had hit. So, and of course, there are other elements to that. There is also like um, the societal and the social and political aspects to these uprisings. So, actually, yes, uh, these are the cases that I'm looking into uh, at the moment, and I think that's something I hope to push forward in my future research agenda as well. And I encourage you to do it. And I would love to hear about about your, your also your research in that sense. Uh, the, the next question about the health impacts. I said I was appalled to to see that not only the war has a, has a horrific impact on the populations, we know the bombardments, we know the chemical attacks, uh, we know that uh, uh, fragmentation bombs, etc. What is appalling is that even when the war stops and because of the rubbles, because of the fact of cleaning the rubbles which are mixed with toxic material, uh, the landmines which haven 't exploded, etc, there are potentially uh, still health and environmental consequences after the war has ended, and even the people who clean the rubbles are also targeted and vulnerable so so there 's um, a discussion which has to be also happening at the at the international level in my sense, not only that the country has suffered from this tragic and devastating war in terms of also uh, generations of, uh, generation of, of children who don't go you know, to school, education-wise, there is a gap there which is happening. There's also the environmental and the health impact, which hasn't been tackled by the government. They have written about it. Um, de- there are declarations of intention, but nothing has been systematically implemented. And I think there's a role for the international organizations here to prevent those health uh, impacts for the populations and the children uh, of Syria, definitely.
0: Thank you. Um, next one, I'm um, not sure this is an official account. Uh, DAA Iraq from the uh, Autonomous Administration in North uh, um, the, uh, sorry, Syria. The, this is a great presentation. Climate change is often described as a threat multiplier that elevates existing stresses and nations are at risk. Even post-conflict, when we get there, how does the international community build resilience to prevent climate change from pushing Syria back? Into a humanitarian crisis. Um, So I think talking there in terms of international actions, uh, both in terms of uh, 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 perhaps UN UN action on climate change um, and their linkages to humanitarian uh, uh, issues. And the uh, next question, which this next question goes to your uh, debates uh, uh, to Varna Hasiolu. Uh, I apologise, I mispronounced mispronounce that. Um, around the, the one of the chapters in your book, which is which I found fascinating, is the it's the transboundary water issues uh, uh, between Turkey and Syria, and how uh, it seems that like many of the uh, uh, this is my comment actually many the, the Syrian policies, domestic Syrian policies, including the intensification of agriculture, were partly determined by this sort of need to to have a strong bargaining hand with with Turkey in terms of allocation of water uh, uh, um, on the Euphrates. So the question is, do you think the dam issues between Turkey and Syria could aggravate the uneasiness amongst people in Syria? And, And actually the second question, do you think that issues such as water security, food security and human security issues can affect the national internal security of Turkey? which is also highly vulnerable in terms of environmental issues such as drought. Um, so there's, there's an issue there in terms of uh, the dam, impacts of dam issues between Turkey and Syria, uh, can that aggravate the uneasiness between, amongst people in Syria, and could these issues also affect security in Turkey? I think one of the ironies in the book, Mara, is, is prior to the uprising, you were talking about this normalization happening. <laughs> Between, between Turkey and Syria over the, the sort of, uh, uh, um, negotiations over shared, shared waters, uh, uh, transboundary waters. Okay, so the first one is, is about, um, I think in terms of the international community, how can it build resilience to prevent climate change from pushing Syria back into a humanitarian crisis?
1: So, so I think Syria is in a humanitarian crisis. It's not because now we're talking about reconstruction that we're past this humanitarian crisis. I think I mentioned the poverty line. I mentioned half of the population uh, being almost half of the population being displaced, either internally or externally. And I think the environmental factors uh, do not help because one of the results of the war, for example, is the collapse of the agricultural sector. Uh, Syria is not able to produce the wheat that it needs to feed its population, so there's a need to import that wheat. Um, and In that sense, resilience is not afforded to its population, and we know that there was the case in the decades that preceded. That's what my book is about, and I think the conflict has made things even worse today. So clearly, um, this concept of threat multiplier, I, I, I address it briefly in my introduction. I, I think it's a journalistic term, which is very catchy, Uh, but for me it doesn't mean much if we don't look at the different circles that I outlined in my HEX framework, which is all of the political, social, economic factors surrounding these issues, environmental issues as well, around water and food security as well. And I think resilience and vulnerability are very linked, again, to structure. And that goes back to my initial point. And I think if the international response to the situation in Syria takes into account these different circles, not just the humanitarian impact, the political, the economic as well, which I meant also about the war profiteers, etc. the contracts that are being awarded to external actors uh, to the detriment of the population, the expropriation of land that is happening as well. Uh, we would not be able to really, really bring a resilient Syria for the future or resilient population and a lasting sustainable answer to the conflict. Uh, to the second question. Yes, about Syria and Turkey. Um, I think, you know, before, interestingly, the water file used to drive the, used to be a compass of the relation between Syria and Turkey. So because of the water file, because of the construction upstream by Turkey of the Gap project, and potential cuts on the Euphrates uh, River, uh, which is shared between Syria and Turkey, and Iraq, by the way, as well, um, that led actually to sort of a securitization or um, a security aspect to the water file when Syria started also supporting the PKK in, within Turkey to bring Turkey to a minimal agreement that it refused to have over the shared waters. In the 1980s, Turkey used to call these waters as Turkish waters and, and, um, and later on agreed to a minimal allocation in 1987 in exchange of a security protocol. What is interesting in the years before the conflict, the higher security concerns because of the war in iraq 2003 us hegemony in the region the rise of the kurds in the region as well brought syria and turkey closer and the water fire was put on the side there was no longer um, there was a normalization as you mentioned michael and even amity i even argued in an article that there was amity developed after enmity and after the conflict, the start of the conflict, we're back to enmity because of the security issues, because of the um, clash between elites, which used to consider themselves as friends. So I believe now, because of Turkey's invasion of in the north of Syria, its presence, its military uh, occupation, uh, the fact that Turkey is very concerned about the rise of Kurds within Turkey, but also the rise of Kurds within Syria, Uh, the the PYD and the support of the Americans, the uh, SDF's uh, actually role in fighting ISIS, which really boosted the Kurdish presence in Syria. Uh, Turkey's concern, in my view, is more about these security, domestic and regional security issues versus issues of transboundary water. And I believe on the Syrian side as well, there's no longer this discussion, but at some point I think if the GAP project continues to be built, Upstream in Turkey and the impacts it will have in terms of pollution, also downstream Syria and Iraq, there will be the need to renegotiate. But I don't, I don't see that happening now because the, the 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 estrangement between the government and the Turkish government, the Syrian government. I don't see that resumption of the negotiations for the moment until there is a solution, political solution implemented in Syria.
0: Good, thank you. We've had a clarification. Sorry, my confusion. I saw DAA and I was thinking democratic. Autonomous Administration, which is not, it's the, it's been clarified, it's the Defense Attaché Association of Iraq. Okay. So thank you for that clarification, mm-hmm. and, it's, and it's an official account, so thank you for that mm-hmm. clarification. So that's all the questions from, from our online audience at the moment. Um, so we've got another 10 minutes if, if we wanted to use it, um, but if there are no more questions, maybe I can just, just finish with, uh, well, actually talking about Shared waters, Mara. One of the, one of the projects I'm looking at at the moment is um, is water governance in in southern Iraq uh, around Basra. And um, so one of the one of the um, issues in Iraq is is what will happen in terms of a post-conflict Syria with a sudden uptake and renewal in 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 water infrastructure building, perhaps in terms of irrigation development. Because I think some of the some of the projects in um, Syria were put on hold, of course, because of the conflict. So there's, there's, a, there's an issue there about knock-on impacts on Iraq of a potential, not only just what's happening in Turkey in terms of dam building, also on the Tigris as well, mm-hmm. in terms of water infrastructure uh, uh, development in, in, uh, in Syria. So I don't think you can say anything about, at least from a, the Syrian perspective, about the Syria-Iraq dynamic.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so interestingly, this um, transboundary issue is between Syria and Turkey over the Euphrates, <coughs> excuse me, and also uh, Iraq being involved in that issue as well, being a riparian on the Euphrates, but also on the Tigris. And for, for Syria, the Tigris has was traditionally, historically, not the major uh, focus, um, but they started in the 1990s and 2000s having some projects over the Tigris River, considering that um, uh, they, were, they were dependent on Turkey uh, because of the Atatürk Dam, so they shifted a bit some of the schemes over the Tigris. Interestingly, even when Syria and Iraq were competitors in the 1980s ideologically, uh, they didn't have great relations they still had a form of, of alliance versus Turkey upstream. They were mobilizing the international community to bring about some constraints on Turkey's upstream projects. So, so that brought some sort of collusion of interests. Um, at the same time, Syria and Iraq had also bilateral uh, discussions and negotiations where they exchanged data and they, they shared information about the, the Tigris project. As you rightly mentioned, uh, Michael, um, these projects were halted now because of and a lot of what happened, the weaponization of water during the conflict also meant that a lot of the water infrastructures were targeted by all sides, but also by the regime. And, and water was used as a weapon during the war, either to tame populations or to threaten them of, of, of flooding, etc. And uh, we know that the Tabqa and the Tashrin dams in Syria were seized and captured by ISIS for several years before being recaptured by the SDF forces um and that at the time that became a weapon of war as well um so this collapse of the water infrastructures and the targeting means that there are no maintenance services that there are leakages that there is no secured access to water for a lot of the population and i don't foresee the resumption of major construction and 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 dam uh, projects in the in the near future considering that I think the immediate need would be to fix the leakages, access of the population to um, safe water, because there's also an issue of pollution as well. And I talked about the health and environmental impacts of the war. Uh, a lot of the munitions as well, a lot of the um, salinization that is happening and the breakage of the pipelines, et cetera, is also impacting groundwater and people's access to safe uh, water resources. and and supplies of drinking water as well. So the primary focus now should be on that and will be on that. And then we'll talk about dams. But I, I think um, between Syria and Iraq so far, the relation in terms of alliances for the war was good. And I don't foresee an issue there. I think more the issue is with Turkey upstream. And then there will be uh, discussions on the on the common, um, on the use of the, of the Euphrates waters as well. Yeah.
0: Good, thank you. Uh, still on water, a, 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 a colleague uh, um, who we both know very well, uh, uh, Professor Mark Zaitoun from the University of East Anglia. Um, still on shared waters, can you give an idea of the importance and trajectory of Syrian water, use of water in the Yarmouk Basin, Kanetsha Dewa and Jaolan uh, Golan, both within the Jordan River Basin? Thank yes. you for your question Mark.
1: Yeah, thank you, Mark, uh, for the question. And I know you have a very um, keen interest in the Yarmouk Basin as well because of your research uh, at the moment. So what is interesting here is because Syria was cut off of its access to the Jordan River following the occupation of the Jolan, the Golan Heights in 1967 by Israel, um, it sort of overused the Yarmouk River. It, It focused more on the Yarmouk River, the tributary of the Jordan River, to be able to to provide water and to uh, irrigation and uh, hydroelectricity for the local populations. So that became also as a a trade-off, and that's the official justification for this overuse of the Yarmouk Basin versus the Jordan River, because it's been deprived of its riparian rights. And this is why actually also, the Golan Heights are still claimed by by Syria, clearly. Uh, It's considered as an occupied land, and it is recognized as an occupied land internationally. Uh, except the recent measures taken by the Trump administration. It will be interesting to see now how much of these measures or declarations will be reversed, but it is an occupied land and uh, it's considered a Syrian land in that sense. And when we talk about land, we talk about the water resources here. So um, there, is also, there are also other riparians uh, on the, in the Yarmouk Basin and, and uh, uh, clearly the, there is no allocative agreement. Uh, between these different riparians. And I know that Jordan has been complaining also of of Syria's overuse of the Yarmouk River, the pollution because of that overuse. And clearly there will be the need to have some negotiations here happening. But I, again, the the amount and the level of destruction in Syria, the level of humanitarian disaster, and the, I would say decades to really come back to sustainability, um, not only in terms of, of Restoring the population to its, you know, um, back to the country, but also providing, you know, clean water, uh, providing resources, uh, having access to food, etc. In my view, that puts these issues on the sideline, and I don't think they will be they, they would not be seen as priorities uh, at the moment. Mainly, more access to drinkable, clear, and and um, um, safe drinking water would be a priority in that sense. And possible irrigation. But again, I mentioned a lot of the illegal wells which are being built by small farmers uh, because uh, these are easy to do. Uh, They don't cost a lot. You can just dig the well 10 meters down and you can irrigate a small part of your land. And that is what is happening. And that's also impacting groundwater, polluting it more and and creating the crisis we're seeing. There's no centralized solution and, and response to these issues at the moment, and there was none in the decades that preceded the conflict. So I don't see that happening uh, in, the, in the near future.
0: Okay, this, I think this will be the last question in terms of uh, as for Mark. Thank you, great presentation. Okay. Um, the, the last question before we wrap up since 25 past. Thank you everybody for all your questions. Uh, Dalia Bakoda, first many thanks for your presentation. During my field work? in the Kamishlu in 2018, some of my research participants mentioned the digging of wells by the Turkish state alongside the wall built in the border of Turkey and Syria. Do you have any information in that regard and what long-term effects that this policy might have on the region in your perspective?
1: So so clearly, we're talking about surface waters, um, Euphrates, Tigris, but there's also the issue of the aquifers, which is very important, which is the, uh, for example, the Ras Al Ain aquifer, which is lying across the border between Turkey and Syria. And the Syrians, since the 1990s, mid-90s and 2000s, um, were, were um, asking um, Turkey to limit the digging of wells on the Turkish side, because that actually dried out uh, the aquifer. There's also been use on the Syrian side, but a lot of the the, the digging of, of wells on the Turkish side was was blamed uh, in terms of the drying of the Khabur also river, which is tributary uh, of the Euphrates River. So clearly, aquifers and groundwater um, is very crucial in terms of of uh, transboundary waters and transboundary uses, and. Um, from my knowledge, um, my first book was on the negotiations between Syria and Turkey, and I was lucky enough to be able to access some of the primary sources of the negotiation, uh, um, you know minutes of the negotiations between the engineers in the Joint Technical Committee. And actually, I felt a lot of the discussions were focused on the dams and surface water, and much fewer discussions and less on, on groundwater, which is actually one of the major issues nowadays. And, and um, I believe that will be on the agenda if any there's any resumption of the negotiations, which I don't foresee in the near future, unfortunately.
0: Okay, so I think we have just a uh, couple of minutes, so we should wrap up now. I think we've more than got our money's worth out of you, Marwa, in terms of all those questions. Yes. And thank you very much for your for for, for answering all those questions. I think we've got a few more coming in, but I think I'm afraid we have to stop there. Um, so. Um, Thank you everybody who submitted questions. I think it's, as always in, our, in the webinars at the center, I think we, we, we always get a, a great range of, of questions for both uh, academic practitioner perspective. And I think we've thoroughly explored many of the issues around the book, of course, uh, as I, let me just get it into screen so I can uh, publicize it again. Thank you. Okay. Yes. So I, I, I invite everybody, if you're interested, to to explore this in more detail. the, the book, of course, is, is 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 much richer in terms of the information, and and detail than than we've been able to convey in this webinar. But hopefully, the webinar has given you at least some of the flavour of the of, of the book and the and, and debates, and the the scholarship. And it's uh, as I said, it's I think it's a it's a I really do think it's a landmark book and we shall be discussing it uh, many, many years to come. So, uh, from that, thanking the audience to, uh, you know, um, Marwa, thank you very, very much for joining us. Thank you for the honour of, of allowing us to, to launch your book.
1: Thank you for inviting me, for, do, for doing it yes, as well, and for your delighted. great questions, Michael, and your time, and Nadine for organising it as yes, well. Yes,
0: thank you Nadine organized. organising. We're absolutely delighted to host you, and, and, and um, we look forward to hearing about your future research and perhaps, perhaps at some point in the future I can get you to sign my book because usually at a book launch we have the have the sort of the, the wonderful you know moment of time after the, the formal presentation where we can all we all sort of network with each other and you can sell your books and and mm-hmm. sign books so I shall wait with my book in my in my arm next time I see you to make sure I get it signed okay well
1: definitely look- Michael and I have to say <laughs> cancelled many of my book talks thinking in the fall we will be back to normal, there will be no COVID-19. I prefer to do it then, and actually I'm doing a webinar. So, And I'm very happy that I have the opportunity of doing it at your center. And thank you all. The, uh, I would like to thank the audience because these are very, very interesting questions, putting me on my toes, making me think a bit about future research as well, how to fine tune some of the elements. And I appreciate the presence uh, at, the, at the webinar as well.
0: So, on behalf of the centre, on behalf of the audience, all those, all those watching, all those who will be listening in the future to, to the podcast, this will be available as an audio podcast for the centre. Thanks very much, uh, Mara Dodi, and we, we uh, look forward, hopefully, to seeing you in in person in the future at the centre.
1: I care. hope so too. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank Take you care. very much. Bye bye.